The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. verse 31 through 35 of John chapter 13. It refers to someone going out at the beginning, and I'll plug the name in there. That someone, of course, is Judas, who we heard about last time, leaving the presence of Jesus and the other disciples as he went out to do his treachery. John 13, beginning at verse 31. Now, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for the other. This is God's word. I'm sure you know that in many areas of employment today, whether in a big corporation or a store or various kinds of businesses and organizations, you wear an identity badge pinned to your clothing or maybe on a cord around your neck that, of course, gives your name and the company logo and proves to your fellow workers and to the public that you are an authorized employee or one who can deal for that company. And it may even be that the badge has a barcode on it or a chip or something that allows access to uh, special quarters or or some uh, rooms that the general public wouldn't be able to get at. Well, you think, wouldn't it be nice if we had that for Christianity? We come to Christ as Savior and Lord and we're issued the badge and the heavenly microchip is there that opens the gate of eternal life and we'd proudly wear our badge. I think it's actually a pretty good thing that we don't have such a thing. It would be subject to every kind of abuse. You think of the way Christians in history have used different signs to give some kind of a signification to one another or the general public that they belong to Christ. One of the earliest was the sign of the fish. Very early, even before Christians wore a cross, they might meet another person and think, I believe this person might be a Christian, but it might be an era, a, a time of persecution when you couldn't openly ask that question. So maybe with your toe, you would scratch the two lines of a fish on the ground and you'd get a positive reply from a fellow believer. Yes, indeed, I too follow Christ. Or the cross, of course, the most obvious 
symbol of our faith through the ages. Today we do it with bumper stickers on cars and we have numerous other ways. Christian t-shirts and everything else to let one another know, I'm the Lord's. Well, of course, anything external like that can be a mere token. And you wonder how much depth it has. What does it really prove? What does it really mean? Jesus looked for his people to be indeed marked and set apart and identifiable. But here in our passage, he talked about a badge that was not something you would buy or wear externally. It would rather be behavior that came from a transformed heart in which the Holy Spirit was dwelling and showing forth the fruit that you are a real disciple. And people would be able to recognize you by your behavior, Jesus said. Well, last time we looked especially at Judas, the betrayer, who now we're told has left this assembly and gone to do his treacherous work. It's almost as if when he left, the the air of the room cleared and Jesus could now speak freely to the 11 disciples who were left and speak of things about his cross and the farewell and to encourage them and build them up in this time when they were confused, all these hints about, I'm not going to be with you, you can't go where I'm going, There was a lot of mystery and a lot of dismay and and unhappiness. But at the same time, he was feeding them things that they would be able to remember later that would build them up. The experts in the structure of John see this paragraph I read today, really verse 31, as the beginning of what is called the farewell discourse in John. All of his words now through chapter 17, which includes a high priestly prayer of Christ, but they're all words fairly unique to John. The other three Gospels don't have most of them, and they're words directed to the 11 remaining apostles to encourage, to instruct, to prepare. So what would come would not bowl them over or destroy their faith. All of this is to get them ready for something they didn't really yet quite understand. So we'll be quite a few weeks going through this farewell discourse material. Well, here in John 13, 34, we get a parting commandment of Jesus for his disciples to love one another as I have loved you. Now that sounds pretty simple, and it's a familiar uh, phrase or, or part of a sentence that we know from the teaching of Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. You could teach that to a child, and they could say it back you very quickly. Would they understand it? Would you understand it as a mature adult, what Jesus was really fully saying here? It's pretty challenging when it comes right down to it, that we are expected somehow to show a love that would demonstrate or be like or mirror that love of Jesus Christ in his self-sacrificing giving of himself in the most costly possible way that they would see within 24 hours what that exactly involved. I have just two main points for you today, but the first of them is in verses 31 to 33, which I believe states the profound expression of Christ's own love, the profound expression of Christ's own love. He says love is about self-sacrifice. Later on in chapter 15, verse 13, he's going to say, 
greater love has no man than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. I can tell you that as far as a typical opportunity for preaching the word of God, I consider one of the most difficult to be the short homily to give at a wedding. Now, you might be surprised at that. You would think, wouldn't it be harder to preach at a funeral where everybody's overcome with great grief or some other occasion? But a wedding is happy. A wedding is a, a wonderful time. Everybody's smiling. Is, why is that so hard? Well, number one, I have to say things in a few minutes. You can't speak very long. And number two, everybody's distracted by all kinds of things, how beautiful the bride is and the cute little flower girl who won't stand still in the front and everything else that's going on. But really, the thing that makes it hardest in my estimation is that I have to try to communicate what love is. And what is the love that these two people need to discover and have for each other? Love that is biblical love, not the kind that Brides Magazine specializes in. Not the stars that are in their eyes and the tingly, uh, unexplainable emotion of romance and attraction that brought them to one another and said, I really, really like this person. I go way beyond liking this person. I love this person. And I want to spend my life with this person. Well, that's great. That's romantic love. We're not putting that down for what it is. But it's not the kind of love Jesus was talking about, and it's not the kind of love that that bride and that groom need to discover in order to forge a lifetime covenant relationship. The kind of love Jesus was talking about and and that they need as a couple is the kind that sacrifices itself, doing the hard work of not saying, me first, satisfy me, oh, I just love you, because you satisfy me. No, it's the kind that says, hmm, I really would like to get satisfaction this way, but I see maybe God is telling me to lay down my prerogatives and serve you and do a hard thing and give something up for you. That's the kind of love that gets discovered by a husband and a wife in that friction of marriage where we live and are called to sacrifice for one another. I find that romantic love will get you to the altar, but it probably won't get you to the six-month anniversary, let alone the 50th anniversary. You need to discover that self-sacrificing love that Jesus was talking about. The act of love he was about to demonstrate on Golgotha the next day was his bloody, brutal, agonizing, tortured death. And yet he would speak about his cross here as an event in which, quote, the Son of Man is glorified. And God the Father is glorified. Strange paradox. God and Christ being glorified, receiving glory and praise because of this awful thing that's going to take place the next day. What an irony. God pouring out his self-sacrificing love would actually turn his back on his son as Jesus became the sin bearer, as universal condemnation fell on his head that you and I deserve, and he would reverse the curse of Satan on those who believe 
and pay the ransom price and take the wrath of God and then rise wonderfully and be ascended to the right hand of God to become our mediator forever. God was glorified in something that was the ultimate act of degradation and self-sacrifice for Jesus. No romance about that. No stars in the eyes. No pink haze with cupids shooting arrows in that kind of love. Just blood and loneliness and wrath and horror. And yet God the Father was even glorified as his justice was worked out, as his holiness was fulfilled. And so a simple verse that we learn as children, and many can say if they can't say any other Bible verse, becomes true. John three sixteen that God so loved the world, all kinds of people. God so loved all kinds of people that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Uh, Paul actually said it another way in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates, not thinks about, demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a strange thing that the scholars will point out that before this uh, time here at the late in the 13th chapter of John, the uh, noun for love, the love of God, was only used once previous in the Gospel of John, and it's in John 3.16. But now, from this point onwards, the noun for love appears six more times, and the verb 24 times. You see, it's when we come to the cross, the self-sacrifice of Christ for the undeserving and the unworthy, that we can talk about the love of God. Not a romantic haze, not a tingly feeling that's here. You know, the, the thing in a marriage, so they get married and then one of the partners shows up at the pastor's office in nine months and says, I, I don't think I love her anymore. You know what a pastor ought to say? No, that's good. I'm glad you discovered that. Now that you're done with the romantic, hazy idea of love, let's talk about the hard, self-sacrificing, acting on her behalf, giving up your rights kind of love that you need to build a marriage. Because romantic love is not the subject here. It's the sacrificial offering of yourself to others. And so secondly, we come, and our time is short here, of course, on the Communion Sunday, but verses 34 and 35, where we hear the heart of this text, that I would label the preeminent badge of a Christian's love. This is the same love God showed in Christ, and now we're asked, as those who've received it, those who have benefited from it, those who have been heart transformed and mind transformed by that love, we're being asked to show it, reflect it. And Jesus puts it this way, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, in one sense, of course, you say that's ridiculous. I can't go to a cross and die. Am I supposed to do that? No, but the principle is absolutely accurate that your love is actually perhaps a lot of small deaths in your life, a lot of giving up and sacrificing yourself on behalf of fellow believers. The idea of our loving someone, loving God, certainly isn't new. Deuteronomy chapter 6 reminded long time ago, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was the greatest commandment. But you see, now the object is different. You're supposed to love not just God, but your fellow believer in some way that reflects that love of Christ. I think you all know as you drive around roads of Lancaster County, and it's the same anywhere you go in America, I guess, you can come along and you know where the places are, where somebody maintains this, and it's a kind of a constant sight. You'll be driving along, and here's perhaps a bad curve where you have to slow down and brake your car, and you'll see, ah, look at that. There's a two-foot-high little white wooden cross at the side of the road, and what does your brain say? Oh, someone died there. Someone went off that curve and hit that telephone pole right there. And your mind pauses, and you go right on your way and don't think too much. I don't think most people stop and make a pilgrimage and pray or something, but, but your mind stops, and you say, wow, somebody died right there. Well, can I suggest to you that Jesus is telling us that the Christian's life ought to be marked by a lot of such crosses along the way of our everyday life, places where we put ourselves aside and said, well, I wouldn't have to tend to this person. Nothing's forcing me to spend time or look into this person's interest or sacrifice in some way or sit down and, and you know listen to them or advise them or pray for them, but I will do it because that's how I've been loved. And Jesus commands me to love, to die a little death. There's, a, there's so many ways in which you can do this. You and your spouse might be having a disagreement, let's call it. Not an argument. Christians never have arguments, do we? We do at our house. And, you know, we adamantly defend our position and maybe even get a little heated and maybe even end up being a little sarcastic and putting the other person down. Well, planting a cross at that place might mean backing up and saying, wait a minute. Wife, I was stupid to get so heated over that. And, I, and really, the position you were maintaining is not very far from mine. Please forgive me. Plant a cross at the side of the road. You just died to yourself to help someone else. Maybe you're in some position to get an appeal from a Christian ministry or missionary that has a deep need and you're very interested in what this person is doing and and you were first thinking to yourself, oh, okay, I can spare $30 for that. I, I think I'll send my 30. And then you think about it and you hear the appeal more thoroughly and you assess the need and you assess your resources and you say no. God's calling me to do something else. I'll send 300 because this is a real need and I can do it and I simply have to die to self by putting off that pleasure item that I was going to buy. So many little ways that crosses would mark the roads and say, I died to myself here. I considered what someone else needed here. We heard, or you heard, when I was on vacation in July three messages from our associates on Christian peacemaking, the 
initiative of a Christian recognizing what needs to be done to go to someone else to actually, and, and why doesn't it happen more? It's obvious because we have to sacrifice pride. We have to die a little bit to ourselves to go to someone else and saying, you know, there's a bad vibe between us and there's something unresolved. Could we get this worked out? We're brothers. We have the same Holy Spirit in us. Why are we so antagonistic to one another over this? That costs. You have to die a little bit to do that. Do you know that I would, I, you know, can't prove an exact percentage, but I'd be ready to say, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say three quarters of all church fights and church splits that divide congregations or send a faction off in some direction, in my 40 years of ministry, as I've seen these things, they're mostly about individuals' pride and opinions. They are not about serious matters of doctrine. Or if they were about doctrine, they got skewed all out of proportion by the pride and the bad interpersonal relationships when no one was willing to back down, die to self, plant a cross at the side of the road, and say, this should not be between two believers. You see, Jesus didn't tell us to hold out a hand of reconciliation to a fellow believer if I feel so inclined to do so, or if they make the first move. You will never feel so inclined. That's why he commanded you. And said, do you see what I'm going to do tomorrow? Pay attention to it. You aren't asked to do anything in that dimension. But merely a pale shadow of it in giving up a little bit of the me that you dwell on so securely and so proudly. And die to yourself. And approach your brother and forgive or take whatever move it is that has to happen. He commanded this costly initiative because he knew that every Christian has more in common with another authentic Christian believer. Listen to this. You have more in common with any other Christian believer, no matter how may your, your relationship right now might seem antagonistic. You have more in common because that person is indwelt by the same Holy Spirit as you then you have in common with your very best worldly friend who lives down the street or works in the next cubicle. Because that person does not have the Spirit of God. So why is it so hard for us to get out of our pride and step forward and obey this command of Jesus? It relates to things we've been talking about in very recent days. You know that that I've made comments and There's certainly been many discussions subsequent to the Supreme Court decision in June, which we feel was absolutely wrong, that the court overstepped, that the court was denying moral principles of God's word. An issue of truth is there. We have to maintain the truth. That marriage is between a man and a woman. Okay, we're strong for the truth. What do we do next? Do we do what the world says we're going to do and spew out hate speech? Actually, no matter what we say... Many of the world will call it hate speech. You can't escape that. But what will we do in the one-on-one realm? 
with the individual we know who is confused and deluded in the way that Romans 1 says about their sexuality and how to express it. And and they're in a fog of confusion. And they say, oh, I know you, Christian. You think I'm the worst sinner. No, I don't think you're the worst sinner. Actually, I think I am. And because I think I am, maybe I could come alongside you and we could talk about what you think about your sexuality and how that, what that has to do with God. And, and maybe I could pray for you. And anybody we know who has been reached for Christ in those kinds of situations has been reached by some Christian who cared enough to step out and have a relationship and love the person, not hate them, even though the issue of truth is not compromised. Christian love for the people of God is not a sentiment or an attitude. It's an action every time, a cross-based action. It's a little death for you along the side of the road. There was an early Roman emperor in the first century who wrote to a friend. His letter survives. He was making observations about how strange, as he called them, the followers of Crestus. That was his word for Christ. What strange people they were. They were odd ducks. They stood out. And this emperor wrote this striking sentence. He said, The Christians are the strangest of all in that they seem to love each other almost before they ever meet. Thanks, Mr. Emperor. You just proved that it doesn't take the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in someone, because he didn't have it, to recognize that God's people stick out when they love each other. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you show this active love that mimics mine, Jesus said. You realize our Lord actually gave to unredeemed people like that Roman emperor. He gave the right to the unredeemed person to draw the distinction between those who claim to be born again children of God in Christ and those who are not because we prove it to the watching world by our self-sacrificing love beginning with one another. Father, I ask today that as we come to your table, maybe we would think on this. Maybe there would be some prayer and searching and we would realize how we need to back up and plant a little cross at the side of the road of yesterday or last week or maybe next week and die to self and stand down from our proud, arms-folded, jaw-sticking-out attitude and serve some brother or sister, maybe someone who's badly confused or caught in sin who simply needs wisdom or a listening ear. Help us, Father. Be sensitive, for you loved us ultimately. May we love at least approximately that same way. In Jesus' name, amen.